following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah 45, please, this evening. We want to continue our series of reading in Isaiah. As some have said, the Gospel of Isaiah. We read 44 today. This whole section is just full of uh, material about God's uniqueness. Uh, our brother Ben came up to me and was very interested to point out to me that uh, this text tells us that, that God is the first and the last. Not this one, but the one we read this morning. Remember that? The first and the last. What a dynamic statement when the Lord says, I am the Alpha and Omega, saying the same thing, in effect. Yeah. But now we come to 45. We mentioned at the end of 44 when we read about Cyrus. And here we go again, verse uh, 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. My friends and those of us, uh, those of you listening online, there is no other God than the Christian God, the triune God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God. All others are demons or figments of sinful human imagination. That's it. That is our profession. We stick with that. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come. Concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, 
and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. See, even the nations, the pagan nations, are going to make this profession of faith in God, this profession of the deity of God, the uniqueness of God. Verse 15, Truly, you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. That's got to bring to mind a verse in the New Testament, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, in Philippians, second chapter. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Any wonder it's called the book of comfort or the book of hope in this section of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah? I shouldn't think so. All right. Well, with the time we have remaining, I'd like to share with you a message from Matthew's gospel, if you'd turn there this evening. I do feel the need to give a somewhat lengthy introduction to the section tonight. The section that we're now entering is 521 to 48, still early on in the Sermon on the Mount, but a lot of meat here and a lot of places that are very well known in the sermon come from this section, from these verses. We must keep in mind a couple of key points from the earlier context of the Sermon on the Mount and prior to that. Remember that the message here is under a larger umbrella of the message of repentance. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, remember the Lord began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to keep saying that until people start believing it. I know you people believe it, but uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist came preaching the same message. That's a summary of their message, a summary of the message that they gave in short form. It is repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, Believe in Christ, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Turn away from that sin. That is the umbrella under which all of this occurs. You can't, what I'm trying to say with this, I guess, is you can't take that umbrella overarching message and then under, underneath that's the Sermon on the Mount. You can't like have a side entrance into the Sermon on the Mount without going through the umbrella. You have to go through the doorway of repentance, in other words. You can't take the side entrance and say, well, I'm not going to do the repentance, but I sure like the moral teachings of the Lord. Sounds nice to, you know, do unto others as, as, you, as they would, you would have them do to you and, and uh, you know, to forgive other people and to uh, be a pacifist and all that sort of stuff. No, you have to understand that you've got to go through the door of the repentance message. Then you enter into this Sermon on the Mount and you see what repentance looks like. Remember also John said when people... Uh, came to him, especially the brood of vipers, remember them? And he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this is what this is about. This is what your life looks like if you have exercised repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in him and turning away from sin. Secondly, secondly, not only the, the umbrella or the doorway here of repentance But the concern of the divine preacher, Jesus, is clearly focused on internal spiritual matters. Okay, He's talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's talking about mourning over sin. He's talking about being humble or poor in spirit. Uh, He's talking about being pure in heart. He is not at all talking about do this, don't do that, these external things, these rituals, these vestments, this, you know, incense and all these sorts of things. He's concerned about internal matters of righteousness, not mere external compliance. Number three, Jesus, we saw last time, is not undercutting the law of Moses. And I'm saying this advisedly because it's going to come that that truth, that point is going to be foundational to something we're going to learn tonight to help us understand what he's saying in 21 through 48. He's not undercutting the law of Moses. In fact, what is he doing? He says, I didn't come to undercut it. No, I didn't come to abrogate it. I didn't come to undo it. I came to what? Fulfill it. He came to complete it. He came to be the fulfillment of it, to do those things that were told Uh, of him that would be done. And so that body of literature of the Old Testament, as we call it, had to be fulfilled. He said that to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected. He said it many times, it it behooves the Son of Man to suffer. He has to fulfill the scriptures. And in fact, even when he was on the cross of all the times that he could think of this, he said, in order that scripture might be fulfilled, I thirst. Can you imagine? hanging in agony on the cross, and even to the T, to the dotted I, to ask for water or a drink to fulfill the scriptures. Well, anyway, we know that Jesus is not correcting the law. He's not saying the law is inadequate. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us the law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's fine for its purpose, for its intended purpose. It doesn't make us holy, it doesn't save us, but it does for its intended purpose, uh, you know, accomplish the job. He's not even amplifying the law into a new realm that it didn't reach before. He's exposing God's intention of the law for his people in or under the operation of the law. 
So those are background to where we've been at so far, 5, 1 through uh, 19, 20 actually. That lays that foundation. Now, there are other couple of other things we have to mind, uh, keep in mind rather, as we walk through the upcoming verses. Each of the next six sections of the text starts with opening words like this. Now, let me just have you look at your Bible. Do you have a Bible with headings, little study headings there? So you can see, you see the salt and light and something about the law. You see murder, adultery, marriage, or divorce, or some such thing. You see those six sections there? Let's see. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, yep, six. Okay, I think I counted them right. You double-checked me there. Um, They all start with, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. Now, we have to understand who or what was doing the saying. When Jesus said, you know, you, you have heard that it was said by something or someone, what was that something or someone? Was it the law of Moses that was speaking? Or uh, the other possibility I discern is this. Was it human authorities, human teachers who were speaking from their traditions? Okay, which one was it? Well, look at 543 for a second. This is going to give us a clue. We're asking ourselves the question, who or what was it who said these things that the Lord gives us? You have heard that it was said, verse 43 says, you shall love your neighbor. Okay, that sounds good. And hate your enemy. Now, let's scratch our heads for a second here. Where in the Old Testament does it say you shall hate your enemy? I'm having trouble finding it because it's not there. All right? So there, there, are, there are uses of the word hate. God hates iniquity. And, you know, David says, I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred and, and that sort of thing. But that's not this uh, context. This is a different matter altogether. So hate your enemy. Hmm. We'll come to the, more, the details of this, but uh, it's not just Romans chapter 12 that says uh, to uh, feed, your, your, uh, feed your enemy, you know, and heap coals on a fire on his head. That comes from the Proverbs. And you see a similar thing in, in Exodus. So we'll, we'll push that off uh, to another time or maybe later this evening. But uh, it cannot be that Jesus is saying, you know, Moses said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, Moses didn't say that. So this is not the law of Moses that Jesus is speaking of precisely. It is something else. And I think the something else is my other option, which was somehow the traditional teachings of the Pharisees have gotten mixed into this. And, and you know what? What has happened? They started with something good, and then they misinterpreted it and added a few things and it became kind of crusty and you lost the original intention of it and things changed. So we're not, whenever the Lord says you've heard it was said, it's not by the law of Moses that it was said. By the way, you don't have to teach any sinner to hate his enemy. Why would that, why would that even be in the Bible? 
People do that naturally. You see it all over the world, tribal hatred, uh, racial hatred, ethnic hatred, you know, class hatred. It just, there's no, you don't have to teach that. It's like, you ever teach a child to say no or disobey? No, they just do that naturally because we all are sinners. So these must be the traditional teachings that were initially based on the law, but which morphed over time to fit man's self-righteousness and his sinful desires as such. Uh, you know, they fall short of the divine intention of the original law. Uh, we have, the, um, for example, the situation with divorce, which is just dealt with briefly here in 31 and 32, more in chapter 19 and elsewhere in the Bible. But they would take that Deuteronomy 24 passage that talks about a certificate of divorce, and they'd drive a Mack truck through that thing and make it say in whatever they want and let them do whatever they want with it. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. All right, number, uh, that was number four um, about you have heard that it was said. Number five You also see here in a couple of these sections, like in verse 27 or verse uh, 21, you have heard that it was said, to those of old, or or by them of old. I don't know what your translation has. Different translators have selected to translate that differently. It's either it was said to those people or by those people. Either the saying was spoken by past generations of tradition promoters or it was said to to the previous generations of Jews and that those sayings had been passed down. I don't think these options are mutually exclusive or we have to make a big deal about it. We know that what it's basically saying is Jesus preaching, telling the people, look, this is a traditional saying that you people have a traditional saying that's been passed down. You've heard it. Others have spoken it. It's been spoken for, for some generations uh, in, the, in the teachings of the rabbis and the teachings of the synagogue and the post-exile teachings or those developed in the exile. Well, this is a traditional saying. That's what he's talking about. Now, each of the six sections continues with these words. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and he gives the explanation there. And then he says, but I say to you, that's verse 22. 28, but I say to you. Verse 32, but I say to you. 34, I say to you. 39, but I tell you. Verse 44, but I say to you. What's the Lord doing here? If, this was, if he was just simply quoting the law of Moses, it would be kind of weird because what he'd be doing is saying, Moses said this, but I'm going to tell you something else. Now, do you think that that makes sense? No, that's pitting Moses against Jesus or Jesus against Moses. You, under, you with me so far? It cannot be, we've already, we've already dismissed that it could be speaking of the law of Moses from 543. But furthermore, it cannot be speaking of the law of Moses because Jesus is contrasting what he's saying with the sayings that are given there. Moses didn't say those things and Jesus is not pitting himself against another divinely ordained messenger. 
fact, Jesus, in God the Father, by the Spirit, gave the law to Moses. So he, Jesus himself said it. He's not going to say, well, I said that through Moses, but now I'm saying this other contradictory kind of thing. That cannot be the case. So we have to dismiss this idea that it's just the law of Moses that he's kind of tackling here. He's tackling a traditional set of teachings. What he's doing is like churches that have built up a huge traditional set of teachings today, it's like Jesus is coming and he's taking the sledgehammer to those traditions. And he's, he's clearing them away and simplifying everything for the people of God so they get down to the basic level that, uh, you know, the baseline level of what God had intended originally for them to understand. So Jesus has to be referring to human teachers who over the years parroted the ideas that are suggested in each of these things. And some of them, again, they sound pretty good at the beginning, but if you realize how they were implementing them, then you understand that there's a problem. Now, the people who heard Jesus say this were floored. 729 says, or 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were accustomed to hearing the scribes say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said, and uh, esteemed teacher of the law such-and-such said this other thing, and uh, so that's what we believe about these commands of the law. Now, this is what academia does today. How do I know? Well, I just know. (laughs) I've been involved in that line of work, so to speak. And, you know, the the, the hard thing about academic work, even in theology, is that, you know, you're expected to kind of have, you know, text and then footnotes. You're, you're expected to do all the homework on what everybody else says instead of putting a lot, a lot, a lot of your focus on what this says and trying to ex- extricate the meaning from that. And don't, don't, don't hear me to be saying that, you know, we ought to stick our heads in the sand and not do our homework. That's not the case at all. We must be diligent. Uh, and, we, and sometimes, you know, looking at those things can be helpful. But I can't bring that stuff to you all. I mean, it would waste your time. You need to know what the Bible says, not what everybody else says that it says. You know what I mean? So we get into the text of Scripture directly and try to understand what it's saying and how it applies to us. Jesus was telling them directly what God said. There was no other middleman, no rabbi so-and-so, teacher so-and-so, and he passed it down and he changed it and he updated it and and so on and so forth with 13 levels of footnotes until you get down to, okay, so, you know, Rabbi, what do I do about that? Jesus says, here's what you do about that. No middleman. He had authority in himself to do that. Now, we don't have that authority, as I argued this morning, with the idea of the Apostle Paul and his authority, but we can imitate what he does by proclaiming precisely what the Bible says and saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus says this God says to you, leave the preacher out of the equation and 
in this sense that he's a reporter. He has no authority in himself. And you want to get to what the words say. Now, the Jewish Supreme Court of Lawyers, I say that advisedly as well, the Jewish Supreme Court of Lawyers was enjoying great power with its expansions and modifications and contractions of the law with its great sophistry. But now the divine legislator, the lawgiver, the author of the law, has come onto the scene, and he's going to tell the people what the author's intention was for the law. This was a major earthquake to the Jewish system. This was going to ruin, from their perspective, this is going to ruin everything. It's going to ruin everything. This guy is going to, this guy's going to come and he's going to teach all this stuff and he's going to put us out of business. He's going to discredit us. It's ridiculous. It, it ended up being an upheaval like they had never experienced before. Now, had they received his correction of their false teaching, then every, you know, if they had become humble instead of envious, then everything would have turned out just fine. But they didn't. Matthew 27, even one as disconnected from Jewish life as Pilate knew that they had handed Jesus over for what? Envy. They were envious of him. And the, 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 the people in the synagogues did the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul comes into town Saturday. The, the synagogue is packed to the gills because people are hearing something that is true and it's from the Word of God and it's from the, the Hebrew Bible and they're learning how to be saved. And the Jewish leaders got all envious and jealous of that and so they kicked Paul out and he had to go somewhere else to do the teaching as we see in Acts 13 and Acts 17. Let me illustrate what's going on here with something that happened about 1,400 years later, 1,300 and on until the present, called the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was essentially this kind of thing happening again, of course not with the Lord at the tip of the spear in terms of personal connection, or it wasn't on the earth then. But the Protestant Reformation essentially brought the Bible into the hands of the people. He, you know, the farmer could read the Bible for himself and see if what the priests were saying on Sunday was true. And he'd come to Ephesians chapter 2 and he'd say, now, wait a minute, this says we're saved by grace apart from works. And that guy up there says... We have to do works in order to merit grace from God. Now, which is it? Something's not quite right here. Beside that, they were going to Mass, and it was in Latin. And they didn't understand Latin. How useless. It's like you sitting there knowing English, and I'm speaking in Russian. And, uh, and we all pretend that it's a wonderful church service. And great sermon, Pastor. You know, I didn't understand a single word, but it was good. You know, you delivered it with great passion and zeal. Um, That's what it was. They didn't understand. It turned out that people found that the priests were not even close to what the real gospel was. Guys like Martin Luther and all those learned that the church had added all kinds of unbiblical doctrines and practices 
they complicated church so much that it was more like a repeat of the Old Testament sacrificial system than it was the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I find it very interesting. People talk about priests. And I don't, could I just grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, listen, there's only one priest. It's Jesus. There are no more human priests, my friend. There are no more sacrifices. You've got to listen to me. People think that they're going to the priest, confession, or to to have some intermediary connection with God or something like that. Um, From time to time, somebody will call me a priest. They say, no, I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. I'm an under-shepherd. I don't take them by the shoulders and shake them, even though I'm illustrating that. You understand what I mean. I'm kind and, and gentle, and I know they don't know they don't know anything. I mean, they don't know. Okay, there's ignorance there, and so they need they need teaching and, and encouragement in that in that regard. But you don't see anything about a priesthood in the New Testament, do you? Except the priesthood of well believers altogether, and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But we are privileged to be directly uh, able to access God through prayer and through the sacrifice of Christ. No human priesthood, though, today. So all of that had been added on in, in, in the Catholic Church, and, and you, know, you have these unbiblical practices, and the, the Reformation kind of stripped those away, at least some of them, and brought us back to a more simple kind of biblical church. And so in a similar way, Jesus told the crowds the real meaning of the law. They were going to see what it was all about, not just what the spin of it was. You know what I mean by the spin? Yeah, the spin on the law. That was, there was the pharisaical spin on the law, the Sadducees spin on the law, but they couldn't get down to the, the basic thing that it was. You've heard that it was said. You know, here's all the common traditional sayings. I'm going to tell you how it really is, the Lord Jesus says. Number eight on my list of preliminary introductory material here, we, we shall see that Jesus taught them that the law was not focused on the letter or mere external obedience. God expects better from his redeemed, repentant children than just what can I do to obey the letter of the law. God calls them to live live a life of internal holiness, not merely external holiness. Anything that sniffs of murder or adultery that smells like it, not just that is the act. Anything that makes a deceptive oath or the other sins listed in this section are things that Christ's followers do not desire. It's not merely the act that is forbidden. It is the thought, the look, the feeling, the desire that is wrong. Restricting yourself from doing the activities that are listed, if there are prohibitions here, do not murder or adultery uh, or making false oaths. Merely refraining from doing those things is only a partial kind of holiness. It's not enough to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, now is it? You remember that? Unless your righteousness... Where was that? Do you remember? 
It's verse 20, that's right. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of these people you see which parade themselves as something, you're not going into the kingdom of heaven. They're not going into the kingdom of heaven for sure. You're not either unless your righteousness exceeds them. And then the people would say, wait a minute, how can, I, how can my righteousness exceed the righteousness of them? And so he's going to teach us on this. Now, what this has, what I've, what I've kind of said in generic, generic terms here is very crucial for us to get. Today, many people doubt that desires can be sinful. Isn't it okay for me to have fill-in-the-blank desires as long as I don't act on them? Isn't that okay? What's wrong with that? Jesus' answer is no, it's not okay. Stick with me now. Bad desires are another symptom of sin, and they are not to be indulged. This comes up very commonly today. Is it isn't it okay for me to be a gay Christian? For me to have desires for someone of the same sex? This text is super clear that such desires are sinful desires. Not just the act, but the desire. Okay? Indulging in the desire. Now, we, we can parse this a little further and we can say, well, what if the desire presents itself to me? Initially, my, my explanation of that presented desire would be it's a temptation. What do you do with that temptation now? Do you indulge that temptation? Or do you pour, throw it out? Do you turn away from it? Do you flee like Joseph fled, fled from you know, Potiphar's wife, okay? When, you know, the angry thought crosses your mind, what do you do with it? When the lustful thought crosses your mind, when an attractive person walks in front of you, what do you do with it? That thing that presents itself is not a sin in you, but what you do with it, your desires are. And so you have to learn, as our brother has said often, you have to learn that your very desires have to be remanufactured. You desire the wrong things when you're an unbeliever. You have to desire the right things when you become a believer. Okay? You desire your desires for material things and for power and pleasure and haughtiness and all of that. Those have to be reformulated. Really, I could say instead of reformulated, it have to be deleted and replaced with better holy desires. And this is difficult, but it's very necessary. Very, very necessary. And so you'll learn to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates in your life. And that's why I think people get all confused today because they say, well, you know, I'm I may be having those desires, and I may indulge those desires in my mind. As long as I don't carry them out, though, I'm all right, aren't I? No, you're still sinning. You're still sinning before the Lord. 
Jesus is making that clear. He does that with, with murder and adultery and all these things that we'll look at. The traditions that Christ gives as examples are from the Pentateuch. Several originated from the laws that were prohibitions. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not swear falsely. These commands, when interpreted in a don't do that sense, are far cries from positive holiness. God desires his people to have a spirit-led desire toward holiness in all respects, internally as well as externally, not just a list of do's and don'ts. So if you think that Christianity is a list of rules, then you have missed the boat entirely. Christianity is a person, the, the person of Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with that person. It's a, it's a uh, servant relationship with the Lord, the Master, Jesus Christ. It's a servant relationship established on trust, on faith, by faith in Him. And that guides us by God's Spirit and grace to have an internal reformation to live for him, not you know by a list of do's and don'ts, but by a spirit-guided way of grace that we honor him. There's a lot that could be said there and, and to think about, but it kind of relates to uh, something I said. I don't know if I said it here in this context, but I said it at the seminary when I preached in the first 12 verses of this section, that... You cannot take these, these laws uh, and, and turn them into mechanical uh, things to be mechanically observed with absurdities as the result. That's not the point of this. Okay? So, for example, you're uh, supposed to um, walk the extra mile. So you say, well, if I do that all the time, I'm going to walk a whole bunch of miles and I'm going to wear the shoes out on my feet. You know, or if I give away my cloak with my coat, pretty soon I won't have any clothing left in my whole closet. That's, that's a ridiculous approach to how to interpret these, these portions. This is dealing with the spirit of how we live, the spirit of how we are, the approach that we take to the matters of life. So we begin then with that whole background as introduction with murder. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Well, that's good, it seems, so far. I mean, the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. That's a different idea altogether. Sometimes God commands us uh, governmentally or uh, in the law or in war to, to kill those who are uh, people who are the malefactors, so to speak. But for us as individuals, we are commanded not to murder. Indeed, anybody who murders is liable of judgment. But does it stop there? Are you really clean before God? If you say, look, I've never actually murdered anybody. I mean, I might have wanted to bump a few people off, but I didn't do it, you know, murder, not me, you know, there's just some people I can't stand, I hate them, you say, hmm, 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, those people could disappear and it wouldn't bother me at all. Now, is that a good attitude? Is that the Christian attitude? Not at all. Jesus brings up the point because here, not because it's wrong to say, you know, you shall not murder, but it's wrong to stop there and say, well, I didn't do the act, so I'm okay, but I can hate people like you wouldn't believe. And the Pharisees needed to hear this, didn't they? They hated Jesus in their hearts. The fact that they wanted to kill him, thinking they were doing God's service, is just the the very breaking of this that the Lord taught them. So the Lord responds to that kind of thinking, you know, the external only kind of obedience, by saying this, I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, this translation adds, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. If you hate a person, if you're angry with a person, if you blaspheme them in your talk, you have in you a seed of the same species that when it's full grown becomes murder, okay? It's conceived in here, or here, if you will, in your mind, and it's of the same species. It's like a mother who is carrying a a newly conceived little baby. That little baby is a homo sapiens, right? And it's alive, by the way. It's a, lot, it's a living homo sapiens. That's why when there's an abortion, there's a dead homo sapiens, and we object to that. Okay? But that which is conceived in her is a human, and when it comes out and it's full grown, it's a human, just bigger um, and more independent and so on. And so it is with hate, hatred, anger, blasphemy, slanderous speech against a person that species of thing that's conceived in you is death, is murder towards that one. It's as if you murdered that person. It's the same kind of guilt attends to that as attends to actually plunging the knife into their heart or pulling the trigger and shooting them to death. Mere external compliance is not a scribe exceeding righteousness. It is not a Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect kind of righteousness. Language, therefore, that is abusive, angry, hateful, spiteful, and the like is evidence of this kind of sin in your dark heart. Being angry, whether with or without a cause, against someone is not the way for the Christian to be. Uh, Some may wonder why that with or without a cause Without a cause is, is in the majority text. That phrase is missing in the critical text. I'm not going to make a big deal about that. I think it's clear that whether it's with or without, you have to be extremely cautious. Because the scripture says, be angry and sin not. And you know how hard that is to do for a human? Nigh to impossible. Maybe not impossible, but... As you get older in the faith and more mature and more self-controlled, you can have a kind of righteousness in an anger against sin and the injustices of society without running amok, but it's very difficult. So 
anger, because, and especially when it's, if it's pointed at a certain person. That's the problem here. Now, be careful not to make a mechanical application here. You know, the Lord says, if you say, you fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. And somebody says, well, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So there's a, there's a sin in the Bible because you're not supposed to call people fools. Now, that's a kind of mechanical application of this rule. Rule? <laughs> We've already said these aren't rules that are problematic. Because the Bible calls atheists fools, not because it's being mean to them, but because it's saying they are foolish, they lack wisdom. So the Bible doesn't say, you know, the fool has said in his heart there is no God in an angry and hateful and spiteful way. It states such a fact in a dispassionate way. It says someone who lives or believes there is no God is in fact a fool. But that's not the same as an angry outburst of a wife against a husband or a husband against a wife or a child, a parent against a child or a child against a parent or a friend to another friend or an enemy to another enemy. That's a different species of thing than what it says in Psalm 14.1. If there is a conflict that you have with somebody, then you need to follow the kind of instruction that comes up next in verses 23 through 26, instead of going the route of spouting off um, hateful speech. But I won't be able to get into that because the clock is ticking here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause at this point and leave that with you and trust that you will be convicted if you need to be, you'll be instructed, you'll be exhorted, encouraged, corrected with regard to this. And you know where we're going next. We're going to be dealing with you know, how, how to handle conflict between people, uh, the matter of adultery, divorce, uh, oaths, going the second mile, that sort of thing. We're going to look at that in uh, some detail coming up in the next message. But for now, we'll pause there and let that sink in a little bit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be together tonight and to look at the Word. I pray that the words that I've shared have uh, kind of enlightened not darkened, but enlightened the text to us as, that it would help us to think about it and teach us, Lord, how we can be more holy before you. Father, we pray these things will uh, really sink in and really help us to walk in a way that pleases you as an expression of that work of repentance that you have granted to us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we ask. Amen.